This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, June 26, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. What are the proper limits on your ability to challenge a conviction? What if it's apparent that the government did not prove an element of the case and you simply should not have been convicted? The Supreme Court has weighed in with regard to some of those convictions. Cato's Jay Schweiker discusses the case of Jones v. Hendricks. The main law at issue here was in response to what? So the main statute at issue in this case is the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996, which was passed largely in response to the Oklahoma City bombing a year prior. And the act does a number of different things, but one of the main things that it does is especially relevant for this case is it limits in a number of ways the ability of prisoners to bring collateral attacks on their underlying criminal convictions after they have been convicted and exhausted their appeals. So in the normal course of affairs, you know, a prisoner might be go to trial, convicted, they can raise direct appeals to that conviction. But if they lose those appeals, they still have the ability to bring post-conviction collateral claims saying, hey, you know, there was something unlawful about this underlying conviction. But what the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, or EDPA, as it's usually called, does is, is it says, as a general rule, prisoners cannot bring multiple collateral attacks. They basically have one bite at the apple. And if they lose that, they can't bring another claim in federal court unless one of two conditions is met. Either first, that there is newly discovered evidence that would lead any reasonable fact finder to conclude that they were not guilty, or an intervening rule of constitutional law that would render their original conviction invalid. The problem is that doesn't include changes in statutory law, which is what is at issue in this case. Okay, so this leaves people who would like to challenge their imprisonment, challenge their convictions, it leaves them in a tight spot. That is to say, if you challenge it too soon, you might lose the opportunity to challenge your conviction later, even if new information of a certain variety comes to light. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think in some ways, EDPA is a, in my view, somewhat sloppily written statute that was passed in a pretty rushed sense, maybe without a lot of concern put into the details. Because when Congress passed EDPA, they were they at least had in mind, hey, you know, if there's new evidence or new rules of constitutional law, you should get another bite at the apple. That's pretty common sense. And no one really rejects that. But they didn't really consider changes in statutory law. So in this case, what you have is the prisoner here was convicted of being a felon in possession. And in a case in the Rehafe versus United States case decided just a few years ago in 2019, the Supreme Court said that it is it, one of the elements of the felon in possession statute is that the defendant had to know of the status that disqualified them from owning a firearm. In other words, they said that there's this mens rea element that if you just if you didn't know it was unlawful for you to own a firearm, that's not enough. And that was exactly the case for the petitioner here, for Jones. And the precedent that the Eighth Circuit relied on in upholding his underlying conviction said that you didn't need to prove that knowledge. And so that precedent, of course, was abrogated by the Rahafe decision. And so what he wanted to say was, hey, like there's been this intervening change in law. According to you, the government did not prove all of the elements of my conviction, so of course I should be able to challenge it. And that's a pretty common sense argument. It's pretty reasonable to, you know, for him to want to challenge that. But the problem is, 
that doesn't fall into either of the two exceptions because it's not newly discovered evidence and it's not a new rule of constitutional law. It's a new rule of statutory law. Justice Thomas wrote the opinion here and said that this challenge is not valid and everyone seems to agree that this man is correct, that his conviction probably should not have occurred. Yes. And the state did not prove its case and I should be able to challenge this. And so it seems that Justice Thomas is just doing his job as an interpreter of statute. I think that he, he makes a reasonable statutory argument. The actual dispute in the case, it's kind of a complicated interplay of a few different statutes because everybody agrees that Jones doesn't fall within either of these two exceptions to EDPA, which are also under the section 225. Right. So these are called the 225 motions, which would rely on either new evidence or new constitutional law. The real issue in the case is whether that entitles him to bring a petition for a writ of habeas corpus under a separate statute, Section 2241, which is the general habeas corpus statute, which is includes this kind of general savings clause provision, which says that you can bring a claim under 2241. If a proceeding under 225, 2255 is, quote, inadequate or ineffective to test the legality of his detention. So that's that's kind of the question is, is, is the fact that he doesn't fall within either of the 2255 exceptions, does that mean that remedy by motion is inadequate or ineffective such that he can bring a petition for habeas corpus under this other provision? Right. So. And that's where the, that's where the justices split. So Justice Thomas says, no, that's not an alternative remedy because 2241 was really meant to be pretty limited to cover situations where, like, for logistical reasons, it was impossible to transport the prisoner to the area, to the district court where the sentencing occurred. And so you just have to use a different court. Whereas what Justice Jackson is saying is, you know, look, like he his his conviction was unlawful. So, and he's not able to challenge that under 2255. So that must mean he can do it under 2241. And it really is, I mean, that is a question of statutory interpretation. It's just a question of what does the interplay of these statutes mean? It's not a question of, is this just or not? And to be honest, I think it's kind of a close call. I mean, I think that there are reasonable arguments on both sides of it, as there often are in close questions of statutory interpretation. You know, I don't think that either side is being disingenuous or unreasonable. And it's just kind of a, messy interplay of different statutes, some of which are not written very carefully. And that's the situation that you get a lot in the court's statutory interpretation cases. You know, this is a situation you get a lot with anything Congress is charged with writing. So Congress could fix this fairly simply. It's a straightforward issue. And as you said before we started recording, you don't have to be a bleeding heart libertarian to come up with a pretty good reason to make this adjustment. Congress could fix this with two words. Like they literally could amend section 225H2, which says a new rule of constitutional law to say a new rule of constitutional or statutory law. That's literally the only thing they would have to do to fix this. So in the, you know, perhaps a fantasy world where Congress like swiftly and reasonably responds to the Supreme Court's decisions interpreting its statutes, it would be a very simple fix. And, you know, naively, perhaps, I don't actually think it would be much of a partisan question because this really is just a matter of should someone be able to challenge their conviction when, you know, the underlying elements were not met? And that's the case here. 
Jay Schweikert is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 